I believe in the United States of America. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And to the Republic. In one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. One nation. One God. I therefore believe it is my duty to my country to love it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. To support its constitution. Stand for the word of God. To obey its laws. It is essential that we obey God's law. A good government protects and provides for the people. As meeting the material needs of the masses through the full power of centralized government. My God shall supply all your needs. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the second in the second half of season two. And just to give a disclaimer, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but in general, this podcast is one that is meant to be listened to in its entirety, straight through the themes and the episodes kind of build on each other. This was especially true of season one, uh, fairly true of the interviews in the first half of season two, and again, fairly true here. You can listen to these episodes independently and they hold up fairly well, uh, but you'll get a lot more out of it if you follow through because I will touch on certain themes and I will build on ideas and things like that that carry over from episode to episode. And so especially as I'm doing this new format of shorter episodes, it's probably even more important because like I had mentioned in the previous episode, I didn't even get through my page of notes for one episode. I got not even halfway through it last time. And so this time constraint ideal that I'm trying to uh, do for the second half of the season is kind of restricting. And so the episodes do tie together even more than they would have, again, because, for example, the last episode and this episode would have been one episode the way I wrote out the notes for it, but it's split up into two. So if you listen to one and not the other, it's not all going to be there. But for today's episode, it will be more on a fairly macro perspective, looking at things like movements and rights and where do those come from, a little bit on war and on decentralization and certain models of large-scale movements, that kind of thing. And that will be today's episode. So to, to dig right in and pick up right where I left off last time, the Next things that I was going to mention would be the treaties of the time period of the Reformation. The main ones were the Treaty of Osberg and the Treaty of Westphalia. And with these two treaties, they basically established religious rights for certain regional areas. So, for example, the Treaty of Osberg basically said whoever's realm it is, whoever's the leader of that realm, that's who decides what religion that realm will be a part of. And so if your leader, if your king or whoever is a Christian and let's say of the Lutheran persuasion, then that entire province or country or whatever would be Lutheran, period. And so they thought that they were uh, being a little bit 
kind and um, giving and things like this, where they were allowing people to be Lutheran. It was okay, and they were going to let you split from the church and not try to destroy your entire people. Um, You were allowed to do that, but the way they set it up was uh, definitely not something we would agree with in today's world, where the king basically determines the religion for their entire country. But that's the way they did it, and that was... Um, a compromise that a lot of people were on board with. It did go a long ways towards establishing some peaceful relationships at the time, and it made a lot of inroads at the time that it was enacted. Now, a little bit later, you had the Treaty of Westphalia, and this did some similar things. One of the main points of the Treaty of Westphalia was actually that it reinforced the Treaty of Augsburg, and it enforced that treaty and made sure that it would go into effect in all of the territories. Also, it included provisions for people to be able to practice their own individually chosen faiths. You would do that in private if it was different than the faith of your realm, or there might be some legislated and regulated times when you would be allowed to practice your faith in public, but usually this was a private ordeal. So it did extend those rights of religious freedom to the individual to a very small extent. But the point is that both of these treaties basically gave religious rights to people, but the argument would be, how did these leaders have the right to determine what their followers and citizens would believe for their religious beliefs? I think most people today would agree that it would be the individual's choice to decide what they believed and what they didn't believe and what religion they wanted to follow. If any, that is the choice of an individual. We all have free will. We have that right to choose. But that was not uh, the way it was dictated at that time. It wasn't that you have these natural, unalienable rights, but instead you had rights that were given to you by your rulers. That's kind of the way that these treaties set things up. For a modern example of this, we have this with the shift from liberal thought, classically liberal thought of natural rights. So for example, the revolutions that occurred, the American Revolution, the French Revolution originally, some of the movements in England as well, a lot of these were based on the idea of natural rights, that we all have inherently certain rights. We have the right to live. It was usually the right to life, liberty, and property, but that was um, changed up a few times for certain reasons, such as in America, it was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the point is that these were rights that everyone had just because they were human, not because anybody gave them those rights. No one could give or take away those rights. Those were rights that we all inherently have. Well, you get into today's world, and we have shifted from that idea of natural rights to an idea of positive law. So instead of these being just intrinsic to human beings. There are certain rights that people have. There are certain laws that people should follow. There are certain things that people should and shouldn't do and things that they have free will in and things that are infringing on other people's free will. That was the original idea. But now it's a matter of whatever your rulers tell you, you can or can't do or whatever your rulers tell you, you have a right to do or how you express those rights. That is what stands. So 
For example, in most countries today, the state makes the laws, and according to what the laws are, that dictates what crime is, and that dictates whether you will be punished or not, or whether you can or can't do something. It's not that you naturally have any given rights, it's that your state gave you those rights or didn't. So slavery is a good example where the state gave African Americans the right to their own life and liberty and property and pursuit of happiness after the roughly the Civil War time period. That was a right that the state gave them. Whereas in earlier view, and there were those that argued for this, Lysander Spooner would be one really good example, but there were people that argued that black people as well as any other race have these rights naturally. The The state shouldn't be giving them the right to live their own lives and make their own decisions. That's something that they already have, and the state is infringing on that. And so it's not, oh, thank you, state, for giving us these wonderful rights. It's more, these are rights we should have already had. Uh, this is a little bit ridiculous. That was more the idea. And my view is that that's kind of the idea nowadays as well. The state often gives us these rights, uh, civil rights, gay marriage, uh, guns, uh, different rights and regulations about commerce and tribute, taxes, safety. All of these things are things that the state determines for its citizens, a lot like the Treaty of Augsburg and the Treaty of Westphalia. The same thing was true. The state were, was giving people these rights in the religious realm, and it was based on theological principles and the theology of the leader. And it's the same thing now, except the parallel now is that politics is the new religion, and political views are the new parallel to theology of that time period. So nowadays, it's your leaders as well that are giving you these rights based on their political views, and it's all a political issue. And so depending on whether your leader is on the left or the right determines what rights they might or might not give you or enforce more or whatever the case may be. So for example, safety is a, a good one. In a lot of countries, it is illegal to ride in a car without your seatbelt on. Now, that is something that does make sense. Seatbelts are for safety. They do protect people. They keep people more safe. And so it is a good idea to wear a seatbelt when you're riding in a car. However, the state does not have any right to make that decision for you. That is your choice. If you choose to do so, then go for it. If not, then that might be a bad decision, but it's your bad decision to make. I've talked about drug laws and prostitution and all kinds of things like this where the state basically interferes with our own natural rights to make the decisions we want to make with ourselves. We should have the free will to choose whether or not we are going to buy or sell something with somebody voluntarily. If I want to perform a transaction with another person, I give them something, they give me money. There's no reason why the state should be involved in that. That is something that I naturally have a right to do. If I have the right to property and my own things and I own those things, that's truly my property, then I can do with it what I choose. Just like the person I'm transacting with, the money that they have is their property and they can do with it as they choose. The state has no role to play here. You could make an argument if one of us or this transaction in general is going to hurt somebody or infringe on somebody else's right, 
But if that is not the case, there's not really much of an argument to be had other than the argument of positive law, which is basically the law of the land nowadays. That's the way most people just inherently think. They think that something is right or wrong because it's legal or illegal. And if it's illegal, but it should be legal, then we need to get lobbyists and we need to vote and we need to use all these political means to make it legal or vice versa, which is a little bit ridiculous because, again, the state has no right to dictate these rights. These are natural rights that we should all have. And so it gets a little interesting, and I would say it's a little bit distorted. Now, when we're dealing with these topics of rights and law and things like this, looking at the time period of the Reformation, you had the state, the newly emerging state, taking over a lot of the roles that the church was in charge of at the time. And so the church was the one who handled a lot of these things to begin with over the broad area of Western Europe, for example. But after the Reformation, a lot of this was handled by the state. Or in, in some places, you could say that there were true nation states, and in other places, it was more of a proto-nation state. But I'm just referring to it as the the state. That's what it ended up being. And that's what you would probably recognize it as. You probably get the idea I'm saying here. And so the state took over a lot of these roles. To give an example here, you've got the Spanish Inquisition, where states were, and kings and queens, they were always involved with inquisitions to begin with. So if the church wanted to do an inquisition in an area and see if there were heretics or some ingrained group that was following something that was not along with what the church was teaching, then the church would carry out an inquisition, but it would be with state involvement to a degree. But if you look at the Spanish Inquisition, what ended up happening is that the king and queen basically took it over. They uh, petitioned to have an Inquisition, and they did have it, and the state pretty much ran it. Uh, Technically, the church was there and carrying it out as well, but the king and queen took a lot of the initiative, a lot of the power, made a lot of the rules and regulations on how it was carried out, and historically, that is not looked upon very favorably, the Spanish Inquisition, as uh, a general rule. But that was an example where the state was starting to supersede the church, and that was happening in different ways and different power struggles at different times. The same is true when you look at the areas of morality and religion and your source of rights and law. Again, I talked about this just a minute ago where it were it was the leaders of an area that signed these treaties and that determined what religion you would or wouldn't have and what rights you would and wouldn't have. These were the states doing this. Previous to this, the church was the one that was in charge of these types of things and how they would be handled. It was the universal church that dealt with these issues of morality and even law to a broad extent and rights and religious practice. All of this was the realm of the church. But coming out of the Reformation, a lot of this was shifting over to the state, the kings, the rulers that were determining these things. And these things were starting to be viewed as stemming from the ruler of the area instead of stemming from the church, which was a really big shift. 
Now, if you look at the parallel with modern times, the historic church is a good representation as far as the role that it played of the modern state. And so in modern times, it's the state that has largely determined things like morality with laws and regulations and things like this. It's the state that has been the source of our rights and the state that has determined what religious practices were okay and what were not, what were legal, what were illegal, how that would be regulated. It was the state that determined all these things and largely still is to this day. But if we are comparing the shift that happened from historically the church to the state, then we need to look at the modern parallels of that. That would be the state to the corporate world. So if we look at corporate corporations, largely a lot of times the state works in conjunction with corporations, just like the church was working in conjunction with the state and the rulers. We see this in a lot of different areas. There are things like war and surveillance, research and development. You've got a lot of public-private partnerships that are going on even regulation, both formal and informal. I'll use that as a good example. So with regulation, it used to be that the state was the one that determined regulation, period. Now, we have always had an aspect of cronyism and corporatism, crony capitalism, whatever you want to call it. There has been corporate influence in a corrupt way with the state, Ever since, if you're looking at the United States, for example, ever since its inception, there are examples of this going back to the early 1800s. So it's not something that's new per se. It has always existed. But the same could be said of the rulers of the pre-Reformation time period and the church. There were always some interactions there, some corruption involved, some uh, pulling strings and doing favors, different things like this. The Medici are a really good example. But with modern times, it has evolved and developed and shifted just like it did in historical times, where instead of these corporations just having some influence in some areas and pulling on a few little strings where they had some power and there was some corruption going on there, now corporations are oftentimes writing legislation. They do so through lobbyists, largely, and it is thought now that the experts in a given field are the people that are in that given field, which it does make sense. So if you look at something like Obamacare, that was a health care plan passed in the U.S. under President Obama, a lot of that was written by lobbyists for the medical industry and insurance companies. They were the ones that did it because the argument would be that they are the experts in that field. So they know how that works. They know what would happen if you pull certain levers and enact certain policies, what could be some of the repercussions, things like this. But when you have the same people writing the regulation as who are going to be regulated by said legislation, that is definitely some inherent conflicts of interest there, and that does not always go to the benefit of the citizens of a given country. There are some issues there, and that's largely what happens now. So on the formal level, you have lobbyists and corporate donations to campaigns, different things like this, that are very largely influencing the regulation and the policies that end up being enacted. And so that that is an example of the corporate world 
gaining some more power and power shifting to them from the state, even though there were always these connections, it's getting much, much more concentrated. And the corporate side is getting more and more power away from the political and the state side. There is the example of informal regulation as well, that the corporate world is developing and largely has developed. It's working very well. And one good example of this would be reviews. So since the age of the internet with this new technology, we now have the ability to rate and review things. Speaking of which, you may rate and review this podcast if you have not done so already. But rating and reviewing things in general is a form of regulation. It keeps people in check if they are providing a poor quality product, and it gives the customer the ability to learn more about it. And that is the role that regulation has. Regulation is supposed to make sure that the products and the services that are out there meet a certain quality and they meet certain safety standards, things like this. Well, now you can just read reviews and look at ratings and largely determine if said product does meet a certain quality and if there may be some safety issues or some certain precautions that you might want to be aware of before you purchase that product or service. This system, this informal regulation, so to say, is completely in the hands of the corporate world. This is not a political thing or a state-run thing. This is a corporate thing where corporations, largely tech companies and online companies, have really dominated this area. And again, it's just shifting some of these roles from the state to the corporate world. And if we look historically, that's what happened. A lot of the roles were shifted from the church to the state. And that's what's happening now. A lot of shifts going from the state to the corporate world. Now, when you get into some of the examples like religion, for example, that's a very clear one here when we're looking at the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, you had this idea that empires can choose a certain religion for their empire. The ruler of a large area can determine what religion their citizens will have. Well, if you say that, that these different rulers can make different choices for their different territories, that was something that was granted with through these certain treaties, Osberg and Westphalia specifically, that was granted. So you could make the argument that if individual territories can decide what religion to follow, then why not other regions within these territories? If it's the entire state, if it's the entire country, then why not the different districts within that country? What makes it any different? Why can't their local rulers determine what religion their local areas are going to follow? Or why not take that all the way down to the level of the city or the town? Why can't the town leaders determine what religion their town is going to practice? That would make sense. I mean, if rulers can make that determination over the people they rule over, then why does that only apply at the very top? And obviously, it doesn't apply at the very top. You had the church was the very top to begin with, and now it's gone down and shifted over to the state realm, but only the people at the very top of each individual state. But it is determined by each individual state. So why not, again, each individual region, each individual community 
why not each individual? If you take this to its logical conclusion, that is the result that you get. And the ideology and theology of the Reformation largely led to this. This is what we end up getting when I talk about natural law and that being the main thought in the time period of, for example, America being founded as the United States of America. That was the thought at that time. A lot of those thoughts and views came from the theology and the ideology of the Reformation. You can see the seeds there. Again, it's the logical conclusion. If you're breaking apart who is able to determine this, then logically it goes all the way down to the individual. Now, if we do expand that to nowadays, to our modern times, then why doesn't it apply the same way today? Now, the parallel today is politics to religion. So if the state, the country, can determine what political policies can and can't be enacted into law, which largely happens, that is something, gay marriage is a good example. That was a major left-right split in America that was only relatively recently decided on, and the right, the conservative side, were saying that this was not a right that you should give, basically allowing homosexual couples to get married. But the left, the more progressive, progressive, modern liberal side, they were saying that, yes, we should allow people to live whatever lifestyle they choose and give them the same ability to do so as you give people that choose a different lifestyle. Well, if the country can determine whether or not its citizens can act in this certain way, can get married depending on what gender they are, what orientation they are, then why doesn't this get extended down to, let's say, in America, the state level? Why can't each state determine whether or not gay marriage is something that is legal or not? And if, if the state can do so, why not each individual county or city or, hey, why not each individual just make their own decisions and determine whether or not they want to get involved in a marriage contract between another person? Uh, yeah, you break it down to that level. Why is the state involved at all in the area of marriage? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. If I choose to marry another person, what in the world does a state have to do with my agreement and my terms with this other person that I care for and want to spend my life with? That has absolutely nothing to do with the state. And so again, if you carry it down to its logical conclusion, even these political issues should, and probably in the future will, be determined by the individual. It will get more and more localized, more and more decentralized, if we follow this pattern that we saw in the Reformation, where the idea of what religion you practice and how you practice that religion ended up filtering all the way down to the individual where it is now, and now it's not even really a big deal and anybody can practice whatever religion they want. It's not something that is very regulated. There are still some regulations. There's always some connections between church and state and state and the corporate world. All of these connections will always exist. It's just a matter of how strong will those connections be and which group will have how much power. And so more than likely, as this plays out in modern times, these political issues will start to get down to the local level and even 
in one future day down to the individual level that just makes sense and it follows this historical pattern that we see through the Reformation is the main example, but these patterns exist throughout history over and over and over again as I've made reference to in other areas. Unfortunately, the masses within a given state or area or region can be influenced very heavily, largely through propaganda. It's kind of like the analogy that's not a very pleasant one, but saying that the masses are like sheep, and you can just herd them wherever you want them to go with mass propaganda if it's effective. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it is effective. And so, yeah, that's not so great. That is something that we are trying to improve on as individuals within the masses ourselves. And so if you look at the historical record of this, this was done during the time of the Reformation and just prior to that by the church. This was very heavily done by the church, especially when you get the technology of the printing press. You have the church issuing a lot of different writings and different decrees and responses that were supposed to determine what the public would believe and how they would think. This was much more effective before the technology came out, though, when the church completely dictated the access between the individual and God and their religion. So as an individual citizen, as a part of the masses of my given region, I would have to go to church. I'd have to go to a church service and listen to the priest tell me about what the Bible says. But um, in addition to that, they're going to be telling it to me in Latin, which I don't speak. So I'm going to pick up some stuff, I'm sure, but not a whole lot. I don't have the Bible. I don't speak the language that I am being taught about the Bible in. And so uh, pretty much the priest has a lot of control over what people believe. With this, the priest and, uh, from a more macro view, the church has a lot of power. They can persuade people to act in certain ways through certain beliefs that they can instill in these people, and they use religion to carry this out. Now, again, the modern example is not religion, it's politics, and we see the state has had a lot of control over their given citizens on how they view certain things. Again, we look at the issue of positive law, where it's largely the state that has caused people to believe that their rights come from their law, and that is a fallacious argument when you really get down to it, and we won't get into that. I've mentioned that multiple times, I think, enough for now. But the point is that the state has a lot of control and historically over propaganda very much. And it's not just the state. Like I mentioned, the aspect of crony capitalism and corporations coming in and taking this role to a large degree. So if you look at how the state carried this out, you can look at things like war and religion even, and race issues, things of this nature. These are all things that have been done by the state. They use propaganda to steer people in certain ways. I've mentioned war many times before. You've got things like the start of the Spanish-American War was more than likely a false flag operation carried out by the states themselves to get the people on board with a mass propaganda campaign going on at the same time in the papers. And yes, it ended up steering us into war. You've got the Gulf of Tonkin incident with Vietnam. You've got 
World War One, the Lusitania, that was basically a, a big propaganda mission that unfortunately took many people's lives deliberately for that purpose. And yeah, none of these are pretty. You can look at World War II as another good example with Pearl Harbor and basically us poking and prodding and getting the Japanese to attack us to give us a, an excuse to get involved in a just war because we were attacked, unprovoked, of course. And yeah, look into that. I've mentioned that multiple times here that we, we already knew about that attack and we were the ones that instigated it and that's what got us into war. That's what happens every single time. What do you think weapons of mass destruction was? That was a propaganda campaign. And they ended up coming out later and saying, oh, well, yeah, I guess there really weren't. And we, we did really know that. But uh, we needed to spread democracy anyway. And yeah, that's the way it goes. That's the way war goes, especially. It's kind of the prime example of this, of using propaganda to steer the people and herd them like sheep into certain beliefs. And a lot of times these fall into political lines and they they play on certain political beliefs that people have. They divide people uh, through political means. If you look at modern times with the COVID-19 pandemic, and then in the middle of that, the Black Lives Matter issue with the George Floyd murder and all of these things that happened, all the massive protests going on everywhere, it, division is a strategy, divide and conquer. And that is something you can do through propaganda, through the media, and by using political arguments, and you get people against each other politically, then it's fairly easy to steer them once they're all divided up and fighting amongst each other. Then they're definitely not fighting against you, and there are a lot smaller categories that you can manipulate a lot easier. You get them emotionally involved and emotions are a lot easier to steer than logic. When you look at the historical time of the Reformation, you've got things like prior to that, the plague that came through, that was blamed on the Jews because the Jewish community wasn't getting hit quite as hard, so it must be their fault. It must have come from them, and there were some big propaganda campaigns going out for that that pacified people's beliefs and gave them someone to blame, and that got blown up, and there were some major issues with that. You also have the excuse of, oh, well, we can't go to war right now around the time period of the Thirty Years' War, uh, the Turks are coming. You know, these horrible, evil Turks that are, they're cannibals. They just go around murdering and raping everyone. It's horrible. You know, they're coming. They're at our borders. We can't fight amongst each other now. And that was basically an excuse in a lot of ways to get these religious matters solved quickly and peacefully and taken care of so that it wasn't a massive split and a massive deal leading to a massive scale war, which is what ended up happening. And so we see that these types of ideas have been tried. Heresy was another one that was used a lot. And a lot of that was kind of more propaganda oriented look at the witch hunts things like this where it was a lot of it that was just spread and it was a false let's say fake news for the modern term that went around and it stirred people up it got them emotionally involved with this and steered them into a certain focus and that's what happens now you've got a lot of things dealing with babies in modern war you had world war one with the babies on bayonets where it was these evil soldiers that were stabbing babies with bayonets which is horrible but didn't 
really even happen. Uh, same thing with babies that were thrown from incubators, and that's what got us to uh, really get into the Gulf War, that these horrible people were very evil. They were taking all these babies out of incubators and just throwing them on the floor. That's a horrible thing, and so we need to invade now. And that ended up also just being propaganda as well to get us to get in there. This happens over and over again. If you look at the corporate involvement here, a great example is J.P. Morgan. So in 1915, J.P. Morgan bought out roughly 25 newspapers and used them to steer public opinion uh, to the benefit of Wall Street and corporate interests. This came out in 1917 officially. I've read the congressional report where Congressman Calloway came out and basically stated how all this happened. But uh, basically what it was is J.P. Morgan wanted to influence the masses and steer them in a certain way for his own benefit and those that are connected to him. And so they had this study that they performed to determine, well, how many newspapers would we have to buy up in order to steer public opinion? Is this even possible? And they ended up determining that, yeah, you only need these 25. And so he basically bought up all these papers, uh, put editors in charge of all of them, and pushed certain stories and certain narratives to get the goal that he was going for. It reminds me of the same thing with the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Endowment related to the education system. They didn't necessarily buy all these universities, but they basically bought the ability to place certain people in charge of those universities and in charge of strategically decided departments within the university, specifically history and psychology oftentimes. And so these are strategies that get used today. They were used at that time, and we should be very aware of them and try not to be a society that can be steered and swayed through this propaganda. Today, it's not the technology of the printing press, printing off pamphlets of gossip and spreading the witch hunt fever. Today, it's the internet that's spreading all of these political arguments and debates, dividing people up, getting them mad, making emotional arguments one way or the other, that is not productive. And that is a tactic that's being used against the common people. And we should be able to see that. So to wrap all this up, we've talked about the influence of the corporate world melding with the state, just like the church melded with the proto-state as well, and some of the influences there where they influence each other and power shifting from one to the other. Well, historically, the local leaders, just like local leaders today, have to make this choice. And the choice is, do you break from the church as a ruler of a country do you completely break from them and do your own thing and basically take all that power and responsibility on yourself? Or do you use the power of the church that's already in existence through alliances and partnerships and more Machiavellian methods? Do you use the church for your own benefit and have that reinforce your rule and enact whatever you want to enact? Or do you break from the church and take all that power, but also responsibility and risk on yourself? And so largely, 
historically, the state and local rulers would get involved heavily with the church, and this corruption just became more and more and more prevalent until the church basically finally broke, at which time the state did largely break away from the church and took on a lot of this stuff themselves officially and became the dominant player instead of the church being the dominant player over everybody. And in modern times, the same thing is playing out. Again, it's the corporate world with the state in modern times. So we've already seen and we've always seen this intermingling of corporate interests and state interests. And we see this getting more and more corrupt, more and more involved, uh, being a bigger and bigger influence and power shifting more and more to the corporate world. Well, what happens when the state apparatus breaks, which historically will happen every empire falls and we look at these historical patterns of centralization and corruption coming in and that's kind of a sign of being at the later end of the cycle which is where we are now and so as the state power starts to break and politics becomes more and more localized and decentralized, corporations then have to make that call and make that decision. Well, do we take a lot of these roles on ourselves more officially, more out in the open? Do we take a lot of this power on ourselves? Or do we continue to use the state? Because the state has been very useful to um, enact certain regulations, for example, to keep their competition out and to benefit their own businesses. And a lot of other uses where you got government contracts and all kinds of things like that, government-issued monopolies. There are plenty of benefits that the corporate world gets from the state. But at some point, especially if the state starts to break apart and lose some of their respect and some of their influence, some of their power, and these things start to get more decentralized, then the corporate world could make the choice to, well, let's let politics get more decentralized. Let's let the state and this national apparatus get more decentralized, and we will pick up the slack there, and we will become the new power players that will dominate these certain areas and these certain markets. That's where the idea of a technocratic system really comes into play. So if you start seeing countries, for example, breaking away from the EU or from NATO, or if you see states within the United States starting to defy and break apart from the national federal government and different things like this that are actually starting to play out, we see this decentralization of the political realm and the state realm. And we are also, again, seeing the corporate realm stepping up and taking over a lot of these things and being involved in a lot of the corruption, but also a lot of just the natural power shifts. And so we're watching this play out. And this is something that I really want to focus on. I think we all should be focused on as current times start to play out. Now, I'm going to stop the episode there. Again, I didn't even make it through the rest of the notes that I had for episode one, and this is episode two, and next will be three before I finally finish one page of notes. Uh, yeah, and I definitely didn't make my 30-minute time mark, but I'm fairly close. I'm keeping it well under an hour, so hopefully that is something that is meeting the standards that I was trying to set forth. Next episode will largely focus on war and the business model of big oil 
and Microsoft and social media and many other movements. It'll be an interesting one that I have a lot of notes for that I found very interesting kind of playing out how all these different strategies and these different business models play out and how that looks in relation to these historical patterns and parallels and concepts, especially these ones I covered today and in the last episode with ideologies and movements and propaganda and war and how all that stuff plays out in these given models and systems. So that's what's coming up. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for the ratings and reviews and for visiting the website and checking out what I've done on there. For those of you that are following on Twitter, thank you for that and keeping up to date on there. And especially to the patrons that are financially supporting through Patreon. The link for that is in the show notes if you want to join them. And I will also be posting some stuff on the Patreon page. I was releasing interviews and other appearances I have done on other podcasts when there were off weeks for patrons because they got a lot of the content early on. And so when they weren't receiving new content, I was giving them that, some extra additional content. I still have more of that to give out. And so even though I'm doing brand new episodes that the Patreon uh, participants do not have and have not had access to, they are getting these uh, the same as every other listener, I will try to release that extra content that I still have stored up and haven't released yet. I'll put that out there. So If you're a supporter, you can be paying attention for that, and I'll try to post the rest of the appearances or interviews or videos, anything else I have, which I have a few. I was interviewed on a local radio station twice, I guess, over the past two months or so. I've got, I think, another podcast interview I did. I've got some videos that I did on my homestead here where I live, and that touches on some of the topics I've brought up in season one with homesteading and permaculture and food forests and all kinds of stuff like that. So uh, I'll try to get a lot more of that content out there on the Patreon page. And if you're interested, you're not a patron, but you want some of this information, tell me specifically what you want. Send me an email and I will probably just give it to you. This is not something that I am trying to hide from people. I'm just trying to thank those that support me financially because I know that's a big deal. And I feel very grateful. So I'm trying to do what I can to give my thanks in different ways. But I also don't want to limit access to things that I'm doing. That's the reason I'm doing them is to benefit other people and uh, give information to other people, things like this. So feel free to email me, ask me any questions you have, anything that you would like access to that you may not have, but maybe you're not able to support financially. Feel free to send me an email anytime. It's our foundations at protonmail.com. That is also in the show notes, so please do so. With that, I am out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.